Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Thank you for joining me for the eighth episode, episode number eight, of this uh, great subject of Reaching the Unchurched, 12 Dynamics for Impact. In our last uh, episode, we just covered a couple of really, really important issues. One is to recapture the whole culture of witnessing. A witnessing culture in a church just has dramatic effects, as I shared about the last church that I pastored and and how uh, we just started a movement without really anybody knowing it, just changed the behavior of people, and it started to uh, become a movement beyond the walls of the church. And if you're willing to do that, then you're willing to do what Jesus did. He started a movement. And then also, the other uh, great dynamic we looked at is dynamic number 10, which was communicating in the heart language of those you are reaching. And that's huge. Jesus came in the flesh to look like people, and we're supposed to uh, look like people, not changing the content, but constantly upgrading the packaging on how we look, how we talk, how we dress, so that we can relate to people on their level, even though our message is something eternal. So as we begin this episode, episode 8, we're going to look at dynamic number 11, do away with secular forms of church government. Now, church government or church governance is the way that you make decisions, how you are organized, how you operate, and your procedures. And what's happened over time is that churches have developed all sorts of rules and regulations and bylaws and constitutional points and Robert's Rules of Order and all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the way a church should be operated. Being the body of Christ, a church is a living organism. It's not an organization alone. It is organized, but it is not a corporate entity like our public corporate entities today. It is supposed to be different. And so uh, a lot of people have uh, just bought into, and then it's become a traditional acceptance to just say, yeah, this is what we have. Now, in every state and in every country, there are some laws of the land that you have to follow. But in truth, they are not all the things that most churches have sort of adopted as sacred and required or whatever to be legal in their area. There are a couple, and for those things, somebody has to be a leadership group, and somebody occasionally has to vote, uh, but it doesn't say how you vote or or whatever. And so we don't have to be like uh, a CEO corporation kind of an operation. And in fact, the way most churches have organized their church governance, their government, it's a deterrent a major deterrent to the way the church operates. And we began to see this years ago 
we began to think about, well, when we consult churches, one of the roadblocks that is hindering the progress and the expediency and the willingness to change uh, strategies when it's necessary to change strategies for a changing world, all those things are hindered by a church governance, and nothing should hinder or hold back God's work. So we began to look at different materials, resources, books, people that have written about church governance, and I was really dissatisfied with what I saw. I'm sure all those writers, authors, people that have have written and published things about church governance, I'm sure they mean well, and uh, there are all kinds of uh, fancy names for church governance that people have made up, and they're kind of the fad of the day for some churches. But if you really diagnose them from the point of Scripture and the point of effective mission, none of them, literally none of them, are at the biblical center of the ethos, the the culture of the kingdom. Actually, they're contrary in many ways. And so any wonder, they, they are a stumbling block for many churches. They are a hindrance for many churches. And yet, they've been somehow secularly baptized as, uh, you know, this is the way the church is supposed to be. So, this is going to be a stretch for us to look at, but have an open mind. So, I began to go to the only source that I think should tell us about church governance, and that's the Bible. Now, other people have done that, but let me tell you what the challenge they face. It's the one I face. If you look at the church governance of a church, you see that a church description of uh, the church is a living organism. Uh, We have the body of Christ, the priesthood of all believers. We have the family of God, the people of God. All of these things are alive. They're viral. They're living organisms. They're not layer upon layer of bureaucracy and Christianity is ultimately a movement, not an organization. We, we don't produce things. God produces things, but we don't. But we are a family, a, a household of God, uh, the sheep and the shepherd. Everything that is a metaphor for the church, the people of God, is alive. It's living. It's a mechanism that is not static and not ruled by rules and regulations. Yes, we have Ten Commandments. Yes, we have some ethics. But the way we deal with one another is not in a strictly legal way. It's in a relational way. And so as you look at Scripture, you learn that first, and then you say, okay, where's the chapter on how we're supposed to organize? Well, there is no chapter on how we're supposed to organize. And so I guess we just defaulted to, I don't know, mimic the world's ways. I guess that's how all this happened. It's it's atrocious what, what's happened. And it does us no good. And I know this sounds like a challenge. It sounds like I'm meddling with something that has become sacred in the world of the church. Well, it's not sacred. The challenge that we had as I worked very hard with some help from our staff 
to look at this whole area of how we make decisions, church governance, is that it's not at one place in the Bible. It is scattered all over Scripture. So honestly, it took me 13 years of study to finally put all the pieces of church governance together. Now, I didn't do that all in one sitting over 13 years. I was busy consulting churches. But that's not a bad thing. That was a good thing because every time I thought I had all the pieces and parts of church governance understood from a biblical perspective, biblical culture, I discovered that there was something else as I went and worked with another church. And I kept doing that over the 13 years. But in between that work, I went back to my study of church governance. And it was a lot. I also read every resource that I could find on church governance. And there were a few little glimmers of light here and there. But by and large, the end result of all these other concepts were too tainted, too infected by secular culture, and really don't work in the living organism of the very unique entity called the Christian church. So I just dug and dug until we could figure it out, and we put all these pieces together. And so we need to look at that from that perspective. And so what we did is we put together a survey that would have multiple choices, and we developed this church governance consultation. I want to tell you about it just so you can get an idea of how this church governance thing is so very important and how to get out of this uh, hideous control of a man-made structure that was never intended for the church. So we developed this survey, and we took all the elements of Scripture that talk about all the governance issues, and there are many of them, and we gave uh, multiple-choice answers, only one of them which was right. And we made this questionnaire. Then when a church asked us to come and help them with their governance issues, we would send ahead of time, before we came on site, we would send this survey, and, and then it would come back to us. We would have all the people on staff and in any level of leadership complete this uh, survey, and they would turn it in. There were no names on it. We just had them turn it in. And so we uh, took and tabulated this and put it up against our template, made graphics so that we could show it on PowerPoint. Then when we actually conducted the on-site church governance consultation, we began with a meal in the evening, and then we showed these PowerPoints, and we show the percentage of the leaders and staff that got each issue correct. Now, even I was absolutely astounded by what happened. And in every church, I'm not kidding you, every church we've done this with, it's been exactly the same. I don't know, maybe someday there'll be a church that, that, that doesn't have this response. But the leaders in every church, up in the 90 percentiles, they get every element of leadership biblically right. 
And so we share this on a PowerPoint, and we reveal this graphically in tables and charts and graphs on this PowerPoint. And it, it's amazing to do because I'm looking at every audience that we do this with, and they're just like stunned. They're looking at this screen and they're saying, wow, wow. And then we get done, and I I just usually say, so what do you think? What do you guys and gals think about this? <laughs> and the first answer is, why in the world do we do governance the way we do it? And I don't know the real answer, but my suspicion is we've just drifted into the secular world. Now, then we work with the church, and they develop a small group of about nine, and we spend a whole day on the basis of these biblical approaches developing a first uh, big step in revamping their church governance. By the end of that day, we have the leaders back in the evening, all, all the staff, all the leaders, anybody that's a leader, and we let them share and we kind of help them and coach them to communicate this new reality. And they share it with the rest of the people and they say, that makes all the sense in the world. Then it takes a, a few months for most churches to actually put it into action and go through all the proper steps that are, they have to live by their present constitution before they can actually operate in a biblical form of church governance. So they put them side by side, and if they get sideways in some way, they have to go back to their regular constitution. But after a while, they find out that this works really, really well, and then we come back and, and give a presentation to the congregation. And anybody who wants to attend has to take the same survey to get in the door. And believe it or not, there aren't that many people who care. So here's the deal. The Constitution adds a lot of negative things. The, the legalistic, worldly Constitution adds a lot of negative roadblocks to the church. But a lot of people have already just bailed because of the frustrations or the negativity or the fact that it doesn't line up with the Bible or whatever. And so we don't get a lot of people from the congregation who weren't at those first meetings as leaders. The rest of the congregation doesn't really care that much, and they just opt out of coming to that second meeting. There are several people that are very interested. They're kind of the people that like that stuff. But even those people, when they're given opportunity to ask questions, just respond. If they know anything about the Bible, they say, well, that makes all the sense in the world. So when a church moves to this kind of biblical church governance, we ask them, okay, how would you describe life at your church? And they say, it works really, really well. And what we can't imagine could ever happen is the amount of joy in the decision-making process. The effectiveness and joy are the two results. So we want to talk about this area of getting away from the secular form of church governance. What does this have to do with reaching the unchurched? It has everything to do with it. Because every decision you make has to go through the gauntlet of some secular 
foolish, enemy-driven, in my opinion, for the church, I'm not saying for a corporation, but for the church, kind of way of making decisions. So, as you can tell, I'm pretty amped about this issue because I just don't understand why we do things the way we do it. Now, along the line, we have to talk about Robert's Rules of Order. Now, Robert, and I've studied him for this whole purpose, Robert was a wonderful guy who was an engineer in England many, many years ago. And he developed these rules of order. And he wrote a book about it. And as you look beyond the book to other things that are known about him, he said in conversation that he felt that his rules of order were really appropriate for just about any organization, but perhaps without the exception of the church. Robert was a very committed Anglican Christian. And I've been in denomination meetings. I have been in church meetings where Robert's rules of order are treated like they're in the Bible. They're not in the Bible. Not only that, they are not in the ethos, the culture of Christianity. Do they work in a corporate world where people aren't Christians or you have a mix of Christians? Yeah, they work. They keep order. Were they intended for the church? Well, if you believe the Bible, the answer has to be absolutely not. Because when you put it together, there are numerous levels of Robert's Rules of Order that are above description by Scripture that would not allow that type of parliamentary procedure, as they call it. So, the other thing that happens when you have a constitution that is a secular model is that you, people have a tendency to drift toward more and more bureaucracy. Whenever there's a challenge in the church, somebody wants to make a rule about it and put it in the Constitution. Whenever there's room for error in the church in behavior or direction or whatever, somebody wants to put it in a paper document. And that's a default mechanism. That's a human tendency. It's a cop-out. It's a sort of easy answer. Because Jesus' answer and the Bible's answer is that you deal relationally with one another and solve any kind of issues. That should be obvious to anybody that's a Christian more than two years. If you're sitting under the feet of a good pastor and good preaching, or if you're in a Bible class, or if you've ever been through any kind of instruction to join the church, you ought to have at least a minimal amount of knowledge and understanding to know that this is not the ethos, the culture of the way people are supposed to operate with one another, even when there are decisions to be made or challenges to solve. We're supposed to do this by getting together with people one-on-one -on -one and talking about these tough issues. 
but people want to take the easy road. They want to look at a piece of paper. They want to have a vote. They want to get the quorum. They want to get the number of people necessary to win the day. And there's nothing in the Bible about that. The disciples, you know, never took a vote, except for one occasion. When Judas was gone from the scene, the disciples had the idea that they would draw straws on who was going to be the return person for who were going to fill that empty spot for Judas. And they came up with a guy by the name of Matthias, and he won the straw vote. And guess what? You never, ever hear about Matthias ever again. I'm telling you, that's history saying, guys, that was a bad idea. Don't do that. In fact, we have evidence from Scripture, wonderful evidence, that says that God himself, Jesus himself, chose the 12th guy, the 12th man. And that person was the Apostle Paul. And Jesus, in a miraculous way, appeared to him directly to get him on the team, on the Damascus Road. And you hear nothing in Paul's letters. And Paul spent a lot of time writing to young churches about how to do church. Nothing at all about votes. Everything was get with a person one-on-one, deal with it. Face the issue directly and deal with it. Deal with it from the position of Scripture. And so we just have this strange situation that actually hinders reaching unchurched people. And that's why dynamic number 11 is do away with a secular form of church government and the way we practice governance. So why do we have anything, any kind of decision-making group? What is the primary purpose? Well, it's to lead and make decisions from the center of God's will. We have a great workshop. I love doing it when churches invite us to do it or our bigger groups ask us to do it. It's a one-day workshop called Leading from the Center of God's Will. And basically, it's a summary of all this stuff that uh, we use for a church governance consultation. And people are absolutely blown away. They think, you know, this really makes sense. They come away even saying, why do we do things the way we do? There are just so many painful disruptions to our end objective of being witnesses to Jesus to the ends of the earth. So if the primary purpose is to discover God's will and lead and make decisions from that center, where do we turn? Well, we're not going to turn to some man-made document called a constitution The only place you can turn if you want to know what God wants, what God's will is, is the Bible. So every church, of course, has to be legal. So they have to have kind of a mini constitution that the state requires. But in truth, that's very small. There's only a few things that you have to vote on. And we operate this way at Church Doctor Ministries with our board of directors. But what we do is we always go for consensus. So what we do and what we encourage churches to do, first of all, 
is don't get anybody on your decision-making group, whatever you call it, don't get anybody on there who hasn't got a lifestyle that is visibly recognized of having a great commitment. They have a great commitment, a lifelong commitment from learning from the Bible. If they can't find the letter to the Hebrews with both hands, then maybe they don't know the Bible very well. When you vet people for the leadership group of your church, they should be people that are in the lifelong process of learning, reading the Bible personally in a physical, visible Bible study on a regular basis, in church regularly. They know their Bible. They don't have to be experts at the level of a pastor who's been to seminary or Bible college, but they need to be people that their lifestyle shows they're committed to finding the answers to life in the Scripture and nowhere else. Those are the kind of people that should be on that group. Then if you have to make some vote decisions for the things that the government and the legal requirements of your church require, then what you do is you say, we have to make a decision about this. And you have to have someone, according to the state rules, that makes a motion and someone who seconds it. And then you discuss it. And then what you do is you say, instead of all in favor and do the stupid vote thing, you say, based on what you know about God's will, does anybody object? And if one person objects, you say, we're not ready to do this. In other words, in God's economy, no one should be a loser. No one should be the odd person out. And so if there are people who aren't ready, aren't for something, then you say, okay, obviously we haven't reached a consensus. Let's stop the meeting and let's pray. Then let's talk about it, not from what you think or what you learned at work or what the world says or your opinion, but let's look at Scripture. How does Scripture speak to this? And if you have something to add to the conversation, speak from Scripture. You don't have to know the chapter and verse. Scripture is a big book, I know. But you can say, well, doesn't the Bible say, and you have a culture of the environment that says, yeah, I believe that does. Who knows where that is? Somebody says, oh, I, I think I know. Let's look in our Bibles. I've been to so many government-type boards or groups in churches where there isn't a Bible within 100 feet, and nobody brings a Bible. And if they did, some of them wouldn't even know where to look for anything. And so they're the wrong people. Too often, churches will pick people that are in the church and maybe in worship regularly and have been successful in their company. Maybe they're the CEO of a company they started or something like that. And because of that, and because they are, are audible people at meetings and they speak up at congregational events, that they're somehow, yeah, because they're willing to be voted in on this thing, 
which is another issue. They should be chosen, not voted. And we get these people, and what they do, they default. Their default mechanism is the way they operate at work, which is by some constitution, in a legal sense, rather than God's will sense. And they may or may not be biblically qualified to do the job. Now, if you have someone who's a real leader in the community or in their business and also is a great Bible scholar, that's perfect. We have a, a friend who is an attorney, and this guy is an outstanding attorney. He's done it for decades. And, I mean, this guy is a genius at the law of the land. But he also teaches a Bible study at his church and has done it for decades and is one of the best Bible teachers, knows more about Scripture than almost anybody I've ever met, including pastors. The guy is just a phenomenal learner, student, and knowledgeable person about the Bible. And so, yeah, would I put him on our board if I could get any of his time? Oh, man, if he would serve at Church Doctor Ministries, we'd get him in a heartbeat. He's just too busy. But I would love that. And he loves our ministry, but I would love that. And so those are the kind of people you're looking for. Now, what about people, you choose people who know the Bible really well, those who know it best. It's part of their lifestyle to be in the Bible. Then how do you get their successors? Well, what churches do is they have an election. And so the nominating committee goes around and asks people, are you willing to put your name on the ballot? And maybe we have to have two or three. That's what most church constitutions say. And so then people publicly put their name on the ballot, and somebody wins and somebody loses. Now, why would you want anyone who's willing to serve in the church to lose in front of all their friends? What sense does that make in the spirit of Jesus and the spirit of Scripture and the spirit of the church? It's nuts, absolutely nuts. So that begs the question, what did Jesus show us about equipping leaders and getting them in place? The answer is, they're supposed to be discipled. So picture this. You have some sort of a group that makes decisions at your church. They're all people that will lean to the Bible every time. And one of their jobs is to pray for, look for, until they find someone who matches that kind of description of wisdom and knowledge of the Scripture, and they disciple that person. That means that, let's say you have a few people around a table that are, are your leadership group, whatever you call it, and then behind each of them is someone else sitting who is their understudy, their disciple, who they are not only during the meeting equipping to become a disciple leader, discipled leader, but they are people who they disciple beyond the scope of the meeting and sit with them in a Bible study and afterwards maybe debrief so that they grow in their understanding of how you make decisions. And that process is very simple. It's a discipling process. Jesus says, come follow me. So the person on your leadership group says to someone, after they understand their 
interested in the Bible and want to learn, come and hang out with me for a while. Then they come to the board meeting and you say, listen, I'm going to do this, but you're going to watch. And then somewhere along the line, I'm going to include you a little bit. I'm going to do it and you help. And then somewhere along the line, we're going to get them more involved and say, okay, you're ready. You do it. You get involved in the meeting and I help. Come on, sit right next to me. And then along that line, when they're ready, you do it and I watch. And then I'm ready to retire and or go and disciple the next person. And you do this over and over again. Well, to summarize, what does a leadership group in a church look like? Not the typical board of directors. They are a spiritual council. How do you spell that? Not like the city council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, but like council, like a counselor. They are counselors. And who are they counseling? The person that lives and breathes the ministry of the church 24-7. That would be your pastor or in a bigger church, your head pastor or your lead pastor. And that's the person who should lead the meeting. Why? Because they're called by God to be the leader of your church. They're not an ex officio member of some constitutional board. They're the person who 24-7 lives your church. And so, as you move forward and think about this, they operate with Matthew 18, about anyone who is dissenting. Go to the person, talk to that person directly, and that's how you make decisions. And so, as you think about church leadership, it is a huge and revolutionary change. But ultimately, it will impact your ability to reach the unchurched. I guarantee it because I've seen it in church after church after church. And instead of arguments with each other, you'll find joy. Isn't that exciting? And that is dynamic number 11. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.